We're in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. We're going to go through verse 21 down to verse 43 this morning. I'm going to go ahead and read uh, the text. And you can read with me or sit and listen and take this uh, story in. But I think it's important to get the flow of the story. And then we'll pray uh, together. So this is Mark chapter 5, verse 21, reading down to verse 43. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by the boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him. And he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogues came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet. And he begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years. And had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Apparently, health care has always been expensive. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately, the fountain of, of her blood was dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. Keep believing. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult, and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? This child's not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talithai kumai, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was twelve years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given to her. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for this amazing story in your word of two people's lives that share a moment in time, that are brought together by their need for you. And we know that you love us, that you walk with us, that you're involved in our lives. We ask that you would speak to us, that you would touch our lives, that you would encourage us. God, I thank you for your people, and you know us. You know what we're going through. You know our challenges. You know each person. 
may you bless them and encourage them and speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. The defining moment for two people's lives, Jairus and this uncertain woman. And isn't it amazing that in a moment, Jesus can do so much. He can bring definition. He can bring clarity. He can speak to us. You probably think of several defining moments where Christ has met you. A lot of those moments of definition involve tragedy, don't they? It seems to be when we're listening the most, when we're pressing in the hardest. These two people are coming from very different places. Jairus, as the ruler of the synagogue, is a man of great wealth, of prosperity. But we find that this woman has extreme poverty. She's spent everything that she has and has nothing left. Jairus is a man of reputation. He's the ruler of the synagogue. But this woman, her name is not even mentioned. It just says a certain woman and she's not known in the community. It appears that Jairus' home was filled with joy and laughter for 12 years. It seems that the daughter in, in a moment got to this point where she was at the point of death. But this other woman for exactly 12 years was filled with misery because she had this issue of bleeding for 12 years. But what do they share in common, though their lives are extremely different, is at the same moment, at the same time, they both desperately need Jesus Christ, don't they? All right, this, this morning we are sharing time together, and our lives are very different. But what brings us to this common place is our need for Jesus Christ. So let's look in verse 21. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by the boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. The flow of events is that Jesus was on the side of the Sea of Galilee where Capernaum is, teaching. A great multitude came. He had to go to a boat to be able to to share. When he was done teaching, crossed over the Sea of Galilee to the region of the Gadarenes, where they encountered a storm. Jesus calmed the storm, get off of the boat, face the demoniac. Christ casts out his demons and he's restored in his mind. Community comes out and says, Jesus, we don't want you to be here because you messed with our pigs. Remember that? Now Christ returns. He comes back over the Sea of Galilee to the Capernaum side. And once again, there's a multitude that's waiting for him, that's pressing in upon him. In verse 22, And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. So first, as the ruler of the synagogue, he had experienced Christ. Christ has been in the synagogue of Capernaum. We found that already in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus taught in the synagogue with authority. People were amazed. Jesus cast out a demon who was living inside of a man right there in the synagogue. There was the man with the withered hand that Jesus healed. So he was aware and had been exposed to to Christ. But also from the synagogue, from the religious leaders, there was great opposition to Christ. There were those who were already trying to kill Christ and plot how they would murder Christ because they saw that Jesus was violating the Sabbath day. In their perspective, they thought he was violating the Sabbath day. What this man has, Jairus, is that he has religion, but he doesn't have relationship. He's great at going to the synagogue 
and fulfilling all the responsibilities of being the one who's in charge of the synagogue. But when it comes to the reality that your 12-year-old daughter is dying, religion isn't enough, amen? When it comes to the desperation and the brokenness in our lives, coming to church isn't going to be enough. Now, I'm glad that you're at church this morning. I'm glad that you're listening on the live stream, but hopefully this is a bridge into a relationship with Christ, not just a religious exercise that we check off on Sunday morning because it's a real vibrant relationship with Christ is what we need in the good times and the bad times. And what this man doesn't allow to happen is his position to keep him from coming to Christ. Do you think that he would have some enemies by coming to Christ in this way? Absolutely. He's willing to lay down his reputation in order to come to Christ because his daughter means that much to him. And maybe that's what's been keeping you from coming to Christ. You're saying, well, people in my family won't accept it. My friends, they'll ridicule me. Because you have people in your inner circle that are opposed to Christ. And none of that mattered. None of it mattered. And he presses through. And he comes to Christ and he lays down at his feet. So he lays on his face. And he begged him earnestly saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. He's begging. He's pleading earnestly. And you can imagine, this is the worst moment for a parent. This is the moment that we all fear. To have your child be at that moment of death. We don't know why. Did she get extremely sick? Did she have an accident? But nothing else can do. Nothing else can fix the situation. There's no doctor. It's to that point where she's going to die. And he comes to Christ. I don't think there's any greater pain in life than a parent losing a child. It's just not the way that you expect things to go. You expect to bury your parents, not bury your own children. So he's broken. He's fallen apart. And he comes to Jesus and he begs earnestly saying, please, please come. And if you touch her, if you lay your hands on her, she will be healed. I think that this is a great model for us as parents of children of any age, is we need to bring our children to Jesus with desperation. And a lot of times as parents, there's a lot of methods, there's a lot of Ideas. This is the way that you're supposed to parent. And I think there's value to those, especially if they're biblical and biblical tools. But at the end of the day, our parenting methods are not going to make the difference in our children's lives. What's going to make the difference in their lives? Jesus touching them. Us bringing them to Christ. Dads, this is the greatest thing that we can do for our kids is to regularly, continually bring them before Jesus. To fall down before Christ and say, Here's my children. Jesus, would would you touch them? I have great parents, wonderful parents, godly parents. Not perfect parents. They did a great job. But that wasn't enough. I needed a relationship with Christ. Apart from Christ touching my life, I was headed to a very destructive path. And some of you can probably relate as well. 
Why is it that kids that are growing up in the church, when they turn 18, are walking out of the church never to return? Because they need more than church. They need a relationship with, with Jesus Christ. And so this is our prayer life. Moms, this is your prayer life. If you're doing this, continue. And, and desperation coming before the Lord. You might be saying, well, I'm not a parent, but I have somebody that I really care about. Bring them to the Lord and ask that Christ would touch their lives and do a great work in their life. One of the things that Jairus has in this desperation is faith. He believes that if Jesus comes and touches his daughter, that she will live. Verse 24, so Jesus went with them. The willingness of Jesus to respond to a need. Please hear this. I think Christ is much more willing to respond to needs in our lives than we would think. Now, he doesn't always meet the need in the way that we think he should. He's not going to meet this need with Jairus in the way that Jairus thinks would be appropriate. It would have been much easier on Jairus if Christ would have gotten there before she died. Jesus is going to meet this need, but Jairus' daughter is going to die, and he's going to do something that's even more powerful. But I want us to meditate upon this and think about this. So Jesus went with them. Jesus was ready to respond to the need. How many other people had family members at the point of death in this Galilee region? But it was only Jairus that came to Jesus. Jesus responds to that. He waits for us to bring these things to him in desperation and faith. And a great multitude followed him and thronged him. So frustrating for Jairus at this point. Things cannot move fast enough. We have to get home. She's at the point of dying. You have to lay your hands on her so that she'll be healed. And this crowd is slowing things down. The crowd's pressing in. They knew Jairus had reputation in the community. He's the ruler of the synagogue. Anywhere that Jesus is, the multitudes want to be around him. So the multitude goes along. Now, a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. Don't have her name. What's this issue of the flow of blood? She's hemorrhaging. She's having bleeding for 12 years. The physical pain and discomfort of this, but also this would affect her socially in the nation of Israel. Leviticus 15 says that she would have been unclean because of of this bleeding, which would keep her from coming to the synagogue, keep her from being able to go over to friend's house. I mean, imagine 12 years, you're unclean. Everywhere you go, you're causing people to be unclean. So she's in isolation. Jairus is with people, but she's in isolation. So, so in this one moment, Jairus's life seems to be going good, and then it goes horribly bad. And her life is going horribly bad, and in a moment, it's going to go tremendously well. And isn't that the mystery of life? Everything could be going well in our lives, and then all of a sudden, bam, you're in the midst of absolute tragedy. Or you could have been walking a road for 12 years of suffering, and all of a sudden, God decides to flip the pancake and do deliverance in your life, and the the trial is, is relieved. So, She comes with with her issue and had suffered many things from many physicians. Oh man, we're thankful for doctors, aren't we? I mean, we we have a real blessing with the medical 
technology that we have. Kenton Beccanali, he was our missions pastor and now has moved to Uganda. And he posted a picture on his Facebook uh, this week of a, a gal that he met in, in Uganda that's 19 years old. And she has a tumor on her face and it's continuing to grow. And it's about the size of, of a grapefruit. So Kenton Becca are raising funds and uh, some doctors are coming over from the United States to work with the medical team in Uganda to, to remove this, this tumor. Complicated surgery. You don't really see that here. Why? Because we catch tumors. You know, if you've got some type of growth happening on your face, you usually go to the doctor and the doctor says, okay, this is going to continue to grow. You need to get this out. But people in Uganda don't have the resources to be able to have these types of surgeries. It's not available to them. So we are extremely blessed with the medicine that we have. But at the end of the day, there's a reason why they're still practicing medicine, right? Like, they're people. They're humans. They don't have it all figured out. Sometimes they can't fix the problems that, that we face. And so she had suffered many things from many physicians. Each doctor's appointment, each new doctor brought her the potential of hope and healing only to be disappointed. And she spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Frustrating, right? So not only am I still dealing with this issue of bleeding this issue of hemorrhaging, but now I have no money. I've spent it all. And what did she decide to do? When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. She hears that Jesus is back on her side of the Sea of Galilee. It's hard to miss. Look for the multitude, you'll find Jesus that she decides that she's going to risk it. She's going to press through the crowd. Maybe you've been in a, a crowd of people that's all trying to go one place at one time. And you're, you're crushed in so tight that you're picking up your kids, making sure that they don't get stampeded in the, this rush, and trying to make your way through this to get, get to Christ. You can tell from the text that she's nervous about this. Even from the way that she approaches Jesus, she doesn't bring her need to him verbally, publicly. She comes from behind where she thinks that Jesus can't see her and touches the back of his clothes, the hem of his garment. Do you think that she believed that there was something magical about Jesus' clothes? That Jesus' clothes had the Moglow, the Moses glow from the Old Testament? And if I just touch the Moglow, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be healed? I don't think it had anything to do with the clothes for her. I think she believed that Jesus had the power to heal her, but this provided a point of contact for her faith. Saying, saying if I touch the, the hem of his garment, that I can be healed. And sometimes in our lives, we see both with Jairus and this woman is that they pressed in to meet Jesus. They pressed in to bring their, their need to Jesus. And sometimes you've got to push through the crowd. The crowd of busyness, the crowd of confusion, the crowd of doubt, the crowd of, does God really care? Is he really listening? And press through that and bring it before the Lord. Immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt on her body that she was healed of the affliction. So in that moment, she's, something's different. I've stopped bleeding. Jesus has healed me. He's granted my request. 
And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that the power had gone out of him, turned around and said, who touched my clothes? Now, some have interpreted this verse like Jesus didn't realize that the power had gone out of him. It was like, whoa, something happened there. I didn't even realize that something happened. Whoa, you know, that's not it at all. Jesus knew that she touched his clothes and he chose to heal her. He chose for the power to go out of him. And he stops and he says, who touched my clothes? Now, remember, something is happening here. The woman with the issue of blood, her interaction with Jesus is sandwiched in the middle of Jairus' interaction with Jesus. And Jairus is saying, okay, you know, can we not worry about your clothes right now? Because I, I know you're the teacher and you're the guy and you have the power to be able to do this. But my little girl is at the point of death. The crowd's already slowing us down and you're worried about who touched your clothes. Like for me as a dad, a dad of a 12-year-old daughter, two, two daughters that are younger and, and a son, my daughter was at the, the point of death. I'd be going like, uh, no disrespect here, but I'll buy you all the new clothes you want, even if I can't afford it. Like, let's just, let's just get you to my daughter as fast as possible. He has to be just so torn up inside, Jairus, as this is happening. The disciples are confused as well. In verse 31, his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging you and you say, who touched me? It's kind of humorous how many times the disciples try to correct Christ. Like, man, he's really losing it here. We got we to gotta bring him back to reality. Like, hey, Jesus, you know, there's all these people that are pressing in upon you and you're, you're asking who, who, who touched you? But Jesus isn't distracted. He's not going to let this go. And he looked around to see who had done this thing. <coughs> so you picture Christ. His disciples are trying to correct him. He doesn't respond and just continues to look. He's looking through the crowd for this woman who had been healed. Why do you think that Jesus is so resolute to stop and to ask, who touched me? Because Christ knows the power of testimony. And it's almost a word that's been overused in the church. Got to give a testimony, you know, to where, what does that really mean in our lives? We're told in the book of Revelation, the way that they overcame Satan was that they didn't love their lives to the point of death through the power of the blood of Jesus and the word of their testimony. Satan is defeated. There's power in sharing what Christ has done in our lives. And for some of us, oftentimes, many of us, Jesus has to call us to that place of testimony. We're more than willing to receive the healing from the Lord, but it takes a lot to be called out in front of a group of people, in front of a multitude, and to declare it with our mouths, okay, I, I had this issue of bleeding for 12 years, and I touched Christ's clothes and, and he healed me and I am, I am set free. And that's really important because in that moment of testimony, someone's listening by the name of Jairus. Jairus needs to hear this. He's going to hear this. He's going to get the worst news of his life in just a moment. And for him to realize this isn't just an issue of Jesus being picky about his clothes, 
This woman has just been healed. Christ has the power to be healed. And you don't know how God's using that testimony in someone's life. Also, anytime that we share something, that experience gets solidified in our heart and mind. Agreed? It may be even as simple as you go to work on Monday morning and you share about the Bronco game. You remembered it. And so now you're, you're sharing it. You'll have more likelihood to remember it in the future. It's amazing how many things I forget. Are you guys like that? Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm getting old, you know? so easy to forget. And this is a biblical principle to remember and to share. And the sharing is attached to the remembering. So declare that testimony because people need to be encouraged and we need to be able to remember. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She testifies. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. She's trembling. She's afraid. Is he going to be upset? Jesus looks at her and he says, Daughter, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. I wonder if she walked home going, Did he call me daughter? Did he say daughter? It wasn't just about the physical healing, though that was important. The physical healing was to bring her into deeper relationship with Christ. God met her in the physical so that she would come to understand Jesus' deep care for her. You're my daughter. Why does God choose to meet those physical needs in our lives so that we walk away going, oh, you care for me. I'm your son. I'm your daughter. And Jesus compliments her faith tells us the importance of her faith. Your faith has made you well. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. That trust in the Lord in the midst of of the trial. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? I'm almost certain that Jairus knew the terrible news that was about ready to be shared with him. Here's some people coming from his house. If you've ever received the news of a close friend that's passed away, of a family member that's passed away, that person that has to deliver the news, you know something bad's happened before anything comes out of their mouth. Just by the way they're approaching you just by the sound of their voice on the phone. Usually, you're asking questions before they can even get it out. What is it? What's wrong? Who's died? Come on, share it. And so I'm sure J. Iris was anticipating and already knew this news that was going to be shared with him. Your daughter is dead. She's dead. This is the point where J. Iris loses hope. In his understanding of faith, he believed that God could heal his daughter if she were still alive. But once she was dead, who could bring her back to life? That wasn't even a possibility inside of his heart and his mind. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Don't be afraid, only believe. 
He hears what is shared. These events are happening right on top of each other. While he was still speaking to the woman who had the bleeding of 12 years, this messenger had, had come. Now he's looking right at Jairus. He's saying, hey, don't be afraid. Only believe. In the Greek, that only believe reads keep believing. The implication is that Jairus was believing and Jesus is saying, don't stop believing now. Fear and faith are opposing to each other, aren't they? And they're fighting for dominance, especially in the midst of tragedy, especially in the midst of of trial. Fear comes in and we begin to imagine the worst, anticipate the worst. Grief, it all comes upon us and fears like a wave that can swallow us up. But then also we feel faith as believers. We, We begin to wrestle with questions and know that God is good and he's with us and God has given to us eternal life and we're also trying to hold on to the promises of God. A difficult challenge, an important exhortation, don't be afraid, keep believing. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. How come on several occasions Jesus has these three come with him and the other nine disciples stay back? I think two reasons stand out to me. And the first is this, is because Christ is establishing a legal witness. From the Old Testament, it says that let everything be established by the witness of two or three. For something to hold up, there needed to be two or three people that would see it. And so Christ selects these three men to be the key legal witness. Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John. Christ knows this. He's establishing the legal witness. Also, he's equipping these three men. These three men will be used greatly in the book of Acts at the birth of the church. Christ systematically, strategically invested in people, poured his life into 12, and out of that 12, even more so with three. So Peter, James, and John get to go with Jesus in verse 38, and he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. This is Jairus' home. This is the place where he has the most memories with his daughter, with his little girl. This is the place where he would hold her as an infant, where she would wake up in the middle of the night, maybe pace the hall with her at different times, watched her learn how to crawl, saw her take her first steps, helped her learn to ride her bike, maybe wrestled in the front yard, on the grass, in the backyard, meal after meal, breakfast, dinner. How many times had J. Iris come home and had his little girl run out of the house and give him a big hug? She's now 12 years old. Never in his wildest dreams would he think that he would come home to find this tumult of people wailing and grieving. It seems like people were preparing for this. She's at the point of death, so, so they're ready just to erupt in, in the grief. What a scene for a dad to come home to with the death of his daughter. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? This child is not dead, but sleeping. What in the world is Jesus talking about? She's clearly dead. Jesus is saying she's sleeping because Christ has given us an analogy of death. He knows what he's going to do in just a moment. He's going to bring her back to life. 
This is not a permanent condition for this little girl. And the way that God sees death and the way that we see death are entirely different. There's not soul sleep. Scripture tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for believers. So we go from this life right into eternal life. If we only knew what God had in store in the next moment, I don't know what Jesus is going to do as he goes in to the bedroom. And oftentimes we don't know what Christ is going to do right around the corner. Even if it is for the rest of our lives here on earth, isn't eternity and heaven just a moment away? Maybe you're going to live 10 more years, 20 more years. Maybe some of you young people are going to live 60 more years. It's just a moment. Bam, you're going to be home with the Lord. Verse 40, and they ridiculed him, but when he had put them outside. So they're mocking Jesus and he puts the mockers out. And there's a time to put the mockers out, to put those out that are ridiculing Christ so that he can focus on the need at hand. And he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Mom may have been at the bedside when her daughter passed away. Jairus wasn't there. He was going to plead with Jesus for Jesus to come. This is the first time that he's seen his daughter in a lifeless state. And for those of you that are parents that have lost a child, this is the most devastating. When I was in high school, I was a freshman. My brother was a junior. And there was a girl in his class named Kimberly Peck. And we were a small Christian school in Southern Oregon, maybe 110 students for all four grades. So we all knew each other. It was her 17th birthday. Saturday night, she had a big party with a lot of her classmates. My, my brother was there. I wasn't there. Some of the girls stayed over and waking up from this sleepover. She goes in the bathroom to get ready for church. Her dad, Bill Peck, had bought her a car that he planned to give her that morning on her 17th birthday. So he goes in to get the car. He'd already purchased it, but it wasn't at the house, and driving it home. And he's anticipating this moment that he's looking forward to to give his daughter the car. But while she was in the bathroom getting ready, she collapsed, and she died in the bathroom. It was instantaneous. She, she fell on the floor, and she was gone. She was with the Lord. Over a period of time and through the study of the autopsy, I guess she was born with an artery that was too small. So she was a ticking time bomb. From the moment that she was born, God knew on her 17th birthday that she'd go home to be with the Lord. And could you imagine for Bill coming up into the parking lot then to go in and find that his daughter was, was lifeless? And this is the reality of this. And this is the heartbreak of this. And I bring this to this point to show us that Jesus has conquered death. Look what happens in the next verse. In verse 41, going into 42, Then he took the child by hand and said, Talithi kumai, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, arise. Jesus is speaking Aramaic. Probably spoke Hebrew as well. Aramaic was the language of the, of the day. He speaks to this little girl in Aramaic. He says, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the little girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, 
and they were overcome with great amazement. Jesus rose her from the dead. As we look at the flow of this section of Mark, Jesus is over the danger of the storm. He calmed the storm. Jesus brings victory over the demoniac. He has power over the demonic realm. And now he has power over death. Christ went on to be crucified and rise from the dead to abolish death. Paul writes and says that Jesus has abolished death. Death is brutal. The grave is never satisfied. The grave is never like, oh, I've had enough. But yet Jesus went to the cross, was buried, put into his own tomb, rose from the dead, so that we can face death as believers with absolute confidence. Jesus comes to believers, grabs them by the hand, and says, arise, and brings them into eternal life. This 12-year-old girl is brought back to this life, only to die again at some point, right? I wonder how long she lived. Did she live to be 50, 75, 85? Whenever she died the second time, she probably wasn't too worried about it. She's like, been there, done that. Jesus has got this. He's, he's going to be faithful in it. And I want us to understand this morning that Jesus has provided something for us that's even greater than this girl coming back from life. And that is the promise to give us eternal life. And as hard as it is for us to see a loved one pass away, if they know Christ as their Savior, Jesus tells us that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints because heaven's that good. We're going to receive a glorified body that never knows sickness, that never knows pain, that never knows sin. How wonderful. A body that Jesus wipes away all of the tears. A body that gets to see and behold God. God gives us little ideas about heaven that let us know how wonderful it is. That the streets are paved with gold. And we read that and we go, what does that mean? What is the top of the economic chain here? It's gold. Something like $1,600 an ounce. And God says, I paved the streets with it in heaven. The thing that's most valuable to you here on earth is the least valuable in heaven. Have you ever just like valued asphalt? You're like, whoa, look at the asphalt. No way, right? We spit on it, we drive on it. It's not like we're going to get to heaven and go, wow, look at the... Look at the streets of gold. That's the least valuable thing in heaven. That's what God is communicating to us in that. We get to rule and reign with Christ. What's that going to be like? It's not like we're going to sit in heaven and and just play the harp with chubby angels forever, right? And it's amazing how the enemy has twisted this to where the idea here on the earth a lot of times is hell is a place that's desired to go to while heaven's really boring. I don't mind going to hell. I'm going to party there with my friends. Well, that's not quite how that's going to work. And heaven, that seems extremely boring. I mean, that's going to be tremendous. It's going going to be exciting. And so here, as we look at death and we wrestle with it in our own heartbreak as we've experienced the loss of loved ones in our lives, to see that Christ has conquered death. He's abolished death. And we end in verse 43. 
But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it. Difficult instruction. Why? Because there was already a circus atmosphere around Christ's ministry. People possibly approaching Christ for the wrong reasons. So he says, don't tell anyone. And said that someone should give her something to eat. She's a normal 12-year-old girl. She's been through a lot. She's had a tough day. She died and came back to life. She's hungry. You know, get her a bacon cheeseburger. Probably not. They're Jewish, but get a falafel. <laughs> this would also show she's really alive. She's eating. She's not in the spirit form. She has been brought back to life. This is what really hit me with the story of J. Iris yesterday afternoon as I was thinking about it, meditating upon it. Is do you think that J. Iris viewed his 12-year-old daughter differently after going through this? Absolutely. Absolutely. He lost her. She was dead. It was over. Never to share life with her again here on this earth. And then all of a sudden, in this defining moment, Jesus brings her back to life. What kind of hug do you think J. Iris gave to his daughter. I bet he held on and he wept and he kissed her on the cheek and he valued life in a much greater way through going through this. Every time that death has touched my life through a friend, a loved one, someone that I'm close to, it always causes me to realize how precious life is. But yet, time goes on. You get Over years, you get back into the busyness of life. That pain's still there, the loss of a loved one. But then you tend to forget how fragile life is and how quickly a spouse can be taken away. A child can be taken away. A best friend can be taken away. And we largely live our lives thinking, I'm going to never die. My spouse is never going to die. My kids are never going to die. But the truth is, there's an expiration date that's been put on all of us. God's numbered our days. We're going to die. So to take this lesson from Jairus and say, God, I want to value life. I want to redeem the time. So I want to close with this verse from Psalms 90. Turn with me to Psalms 90, verse 12. We'll read it, and then we'll pray together. Psalms 90. Verse 12. What's unique about this psalm is it's the psalm of Moses. Moses wrote this song. And this is his prayer. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Father, we thank you for this section of scripture. We thank you for the reminder of how short life is. We thank you, Jesus, that you have abolished death, that you are victorious over the grave, and we lay hold of eternal life. I pray specifically this morning for parents that have buried children and lost children, that you would comfort their hearts in a way that only you can. I know for some it's fresh, and for others it's 
been years, but the pain is very real. Would you encourage them? And as all of us will face death, death of loved ones, our own death, may you fill us with the reality of your hope. Pray for those that don't know Christ as their Savior, that they would realize that time is short, that time is valuable, and be willing to surrender their hearts and lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen.